You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is journalist extraordinaire at The Atlantic and author of The Kingdom, Tim Alberta. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Collective and Beam, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, for months, uh, James Comer, the uh, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, has been saying, we want to talk to Hunter Biden. We're going after Hunter Biden. We think awful things happen. They're trying to tie it to his father, of course. Well, the other day, Hunter Biden threw it back at him. He said, I'll testify. I'll testify in public. Now, what do you imagine? You would think Mr. Comer would be relieved, but he said, no way. We want to have a private session, which, of course, enables them to, to leak selective um, portions, as they did with earlier witnesses. Um, you know, James, I, I've covered a lot of investigations when I was younger on the Hill, and there's a case for saying you want to talk to someone in private before they go public. Uh, before you have a public hearing. That's very justifiable. But that's when it's a normal, serious hearing. The kinds that John Dingell used to run, Henry Waxman and Tom Davis. Uh, this is not a serious hearing. This is a witch hunt. All they want to do is somehow smear Hunter Biden enough so it hurts his father. So in this case, I think it's totally justified in what Hunter Biden is proposing. And I think he's got him uh, over a barrel. Because if Comer keeps saying no, Hunter Biden keeps saying, I ain't going to come up and testify to you guys in private so you can leak whatever you want to, but I'll be there in public. I think Hunter Biden wins that. And I want to tell you, and I think you agree with this, there is a parallel to what they're trying to do, although Mr. Comer and his staff are so inept, they're not pulling it off, and that is the so-called Benghazi hearings of 2015. They were trying to... Uh, incriminate Hillary Clinton as being responsible for the killing of four Americans uh, by terrorists in Benghazi, Libya. The hearing went on for over a year. It produced absolutely nothing. She testified and turned them inside out. But Kevin McCarthy, who has the habit sometimes of telling the truth when it's inconvenient, maybe unintentional, said, you know, we achieved our purposes. We hurt her. We damaged her for 2016. That's all the Comer hearing is about this time. And I think they got handed their lunch this week. Well, he's too generous. They weren't leaking selective portions. They were lying. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> they, weren't even, they weren't even that, and <laughs> of course. And so they had nothing. They knew they had nothing. They knew it wasn't going anywhere. And so the strategy they came up with is, you know, we'll, we'll, 
subpoena him. His lawyers won't let him testify because he has the perfect right to exercise Fifth Amendment if I haven't seen one. This guy has, it's, it's a gold-plated Fifth Amendment example of refusing to testify. And when he said yes, it's, it, it totally flipped the script. Now, I've said this publicly, and I'll, I'll, I'll triple down on it. And Coma is stupid. All right, and you understand that. Uh, uh, Dan Goldman and uh, Plaskett, the delegate from the Virgin Islands, or the guy Moskowitz of all Jamie of these, Raskin, these yeah. guys are really smart. Yeah. yeah, they're smart. Jamie Raskin, they're smart. They're good lawyers. They're really smart people. And Coma is, is a, a, a dunce. And he's getting his ass handed to him, and now... They're in a terrible box. If the public says, well, you know, I understand that there's sometimes good, good reason that you want to have preliminary sessions. You're trying to get ball this girl. Grand jury testimony is secret. But they have put themselves in an untenable position. They don't have, politically, they have no argument. And I, I, I think, and, you know, the, the problem is when you get him there, He's got good lawyers. I mean, Abby Lowell is a very experienced attorney. He's, uh, I know some of his people. He's going to, he obviously, when you, you, a guy knows he's going somewhere, they, they, they're going to practice for, like anybody would for hours on hours and hours and answering every possible question. And they're fools, and they're making fools of themselves, and he's just made a huge fool out of them. And, th th and that was their whole strategy. I mean, if you listen as I do, but, but, you know, I don't know, like a high tolerance of pain to, to like Mark Levin and Sean Hannity and that kind of stuff, that's, it, it's a noun, a verb, and Hunter Biden is, is President Biden brilliantly said about Rudy Giuliani. It's a noun, a verb, in 9-11. It's a noun, a verb, and Hunter Biden. And that's right. all the way in. And now they're just exposed. It was a brilliant move. They don't have... They don't, even, they don't have an answer. Not only do they have a good answer, they don't even have an answer. And, and boy, I watched uh, Goldman and uh, Moskowitz on television this morning. They were just beating them, just pummeling them like, a, like they were clubbing a baby seal or something. And just, just, I'm, I'm not, seldom do you see a, a story just flip right on its Right, right, right in front of your face. But they did it this time, and they wasn't they weren't expecting it. And Coma and his staff are too stupid to know what's coming on. I, I'd like to get the names of these people so that you can everybody would know. Don't hire them to be a James. Lawyer. That is a really good point, and I'm I'm calling on the news media. Please tell us about the Jim Jordan uh, and the Comer staff. <clears throat> if you look at any congressional investigation, and Lord knows I covered a lot when I was much, much younger. But going back to the House Impeachment Committee, all the hearings and investigations that John Dingell had, uh, the Irvin Committee, they that one commonality they had is they had smart leaders, to be sure, like Dingell and, and, and others, but they had smart staff. The staff of the Judiciary Committee included John Doerr and Bob Sack. The staff of the Irvin Committee had Sam Dash and some really good, smart lawyers. Uh, Dingell had some of the best people around. Uh, this is just a clown show, and you right. ought to go and 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 talk about. Someone's got to write about who some of some of these staff members are. Yes, 
Yes. In, in traditionally, yeah, I, I, I think yeah, she was high up the way some of the others were. Yeah, but I understand. But she was, but 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 that not saying, but but that was a that was a career move. If you 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 had a job on one of these congressional committees, as you know, as an investigator, or a lawyer, or something like that, that was a a good career move. These people are making fools of themselves, total fools of themselves. And the reason that they're making fools of themselves is because, well, let's see, they're fools. How they couldn't see this coming, I have no idea. And I think part of it, by the way, is that, that what the government does, and did, you know, I know this because I've been around people have been on investigation, they're breaking the guy. They just, they're like, they haven't been lawyers and they keep dragging it out and subpoenaing this. And finally, he says, fuck it, I had enough. I'll show up. And that right. flipped the script. But but that, that's that's the way that they operate. Now they got the David Weiss thing. This game, what are they going to find out? They have been investigating this guy for two years. What what else are you going to find out that you don't know? What's the what's the mystery here? There is none. And, and hats off to, to to Hunter. And and you know when you. you Stupid people do stupid no, things. No, I think that's right. And <clears throat> we've had now, uh, what, ten and a half months of what was to be a top House Republican priority, investigations. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Jim Jordan and James Comer, they have produced in ten and a right. half months absolutely nothing except wasting a lot of taxpayer money. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just hope that they're held accountable for that because it really has been a disgrace. Well, I mean, I, you know, they don't hold Trump. If 45% of the country don't hold Trump accountable, they must hope they're going to hold James Comer accountable. But not in his district, but, but I think the Republican, when the campaign begins next year, the Republicans had several promises. They were going to slash spending, cut taxes, get rid of regulations, et cetera, and have investigations. They have failed on every single count. So if you're running against Tom Keene in New Jersey or you're running against uh, <clears throat> that guy in Omaha no. or John James in Michigan, what have you achieved? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Chip Roy, answered it for you. I mean, that's the golden right. clip. Why would anybody uh, Actually, that's, that's one of okay, them. But the one is, is <clears throat> the best one may be Dan Buck. They lie about everything. That's a yeah. very conservative Colorado but, yeah. Republican. Is it Ken Buck or Dan Buck? I don't know. Yeah. Right, right. Didn't he, he run did. for He did. He ran against too, Michael yeah. Bennett. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> I think I, I said right. this a couple weeks ago, but I covered that race. And he was he was just, he was really unpleasant. Uh, he's the one, he said, you work for Bloomberg. And I said, yeah. He says, is Mike Bloomberg a socialist? I said, I don't think so. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Buck. And he was really quite yeah. ugly. But then he came to Congress, and he is a bona fide conservative, but he's been honest about this stuff, and now he's leaving. Uh, I, I think he must – I think his district. <laughs> no, I don't I think his district is any different than it was last time. <clears throat> I don't no, think no, they no, redistrict so. Maybe, maybe the man has a, a, well, a tolerance level, you know, who am I know, He's just sick of it. You know, I ran into a congressman. Right. If, well, I, I, if I was – if uh, if I were, if that was a Democrat, I would be so mad at that committee. Or, you know, not just me, but the other, everybody would. The people would be livid. The, the the 
commentary would be livid, the other Democrats would be livid. There'd be endless stuff. Finally, somebody's just had enough of the stupidity, and it's it, it's real stupidity. That's all I can do. I'm, I guess I they feel they're trapped. They made steroids. a promise. They can't say we failed because, James, it's not like, well, we failed on this, but we achieved A, B, and C because they've achieved nothing. And uh, so I, I, I think they're caught up by their own uh, stupid rhetoric and, and promises. Let me turn to presidential politics for a minute on the Republican side. Okay, Nikki sure. Haley uh, is the is the is hot. She's the flavor of the month. Uh, she got the endorsement of the Coke Network the other day. She's getting more money. She's climbing the polls. Um, and there is there is a scenario that's not crazy, whereby she knocks DeSantis out in Iowa. She beats DeSantis in Iowa. If DeSantis finishes third in Iowa, you know he's got to get out. He's gone. He's invested everything there. Uh, secondly, she then goes to New Hampshire and wins an upset, which means that Trump is bleeding, at least. You know, I don't know if he's got a good cut man. And that knocks Chris Christie out. No one pays any attention to Ram Swamy or whatever his name is. So she gets Trump one-on-one, beats him in South Carolina, and then, then off to the races. Do I, what, what are the odds of that scenario? I don't know, 20%. Uh, and the Coke Network, which I have contempt for, that's a help for her right now. It's a help financially and it's a help organizationally. That's not one of her strengths in a place like Iowa. So I think for at least the next month or so, uh, Nikki Haley's going to be a big story. May not last a lot beyond that. Well, I'm pulling for her. I think she's a much easier general election candidate than Trump. All right. And, and she is uh, bought all in on the Rick Scott. You know, Trump don't have to talk about Social Security and Medicare. They, they, those people don't want to cut that in the more than anything else. She would be, in my opinion, a significantly weaker general election candidate than Donald Trump. And I, 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 I'm pulling hard for Nikki Haley. I really am. Because they, they're not going to come out and vote for her. At all. <laughs> and I, I think this is just, you know, the, the Koch brothers and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they ain't nothing there but, but sheer ambition and a lot of odious things that these, 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 these people are not going to come out and vote for. These evangelicals and these churches and all over the place that, 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 She's Romney-esque in that sense. They, they, she, uh, please, please, Nikki, win. I, I can't tell you. Well, I disagree on that. Uh, I, I don't disagree with your analysis <laughs> of, of of her vulnerabilities, but I think that thirty-year age gap that she would be uh, that'd be very, very difficult uh, for Biden if, for an election uh, about the future, given even given all of her weaknesses. But you know, it's it's probably an academic argument because okay. unless. A Trump conviction right. really is different than everything else. Going back to Access Hollywood, Charlottesville, all the lies he's told, all the other charges. Unless that's different, I don't know that it will be. Uh, then he's going to be the nominee. Well, I, I, I understand. I think she's is, it be about as weak as possible. I know that age different, but she they, they're not going to react to her at all, and they're not going to come out and yeah, you know. The, She'll get a standard vote because the problem, the problem that Biden, the really profound, serious problem that the Democrats face, I was looking at a poll this morning uh, on, on uh, Latino voters, Hispanic voters, and it's not good at all. And it's, it's, it's young, we don't have any enthusiasm. We're, got, we're having terrible 
turnout issues for young voters, black voters, voters of color. And she, and, and the one thing that Trump does, he brings his, he brings his base out. That's I mean, right. they come and they fucking vote for him, man. And they ain't going to come out and vote for her. I, and I understand, but I, 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 I really think that she is the, a really weak general election candidate. Really weak. I don't know if I hope it's tested or not, because on the one hand, I think that Donald Trump is a threat to everything America's all about. So it'd be better to have someone uh, someone else. On the other hand, I, you and I disagree on her as a general election candidate vis-a-vis Biden. But as we say, right. it's probably academic. James, I'm going to give you an assignment. You have to get Liz Cheney on this podcast in the next week or two. She's got a book that's coming out. People are writing about the particulars. <laughs> There's really interesting stuff in there because she tells exactly what happens inside that Republican caucus that uh, Kevin McCarthy said he he went to visit uh, Donald Trump right after January 6th because the poor Donald, he was so upset he wasn't eating. So uh, Dr. McCarthy went down to try to take care of him that Michael Johnson was a total phony on this. He he really pushed this bill. He got the House to, to file an amicus brief on the Texas Attorney General's case, which was to throw out the electoral votes in four other states. I got this. Texas was going to dis- decide how Pennsylvania and how Wisconsin and how Georgia uh, and how Michigan votes. It was a stupid, stupid case. And she points out that not only that, but Johnson didn't even draft it. It was mainly done by Trump lawyers. And there are other great tidbits in there. Jim Jordan, who said, I don't care about facts. I just want to get him out. I want to get him elected. And a congressman from Tennessee that I've never met, I think his name is Bill Green, said, we got to do this for the orange Jesus. Uh, we got to get lit. Is it Green or is it Bircher? Is it a guy from West Tennessee? Is one like Tom Burchett or something? Yeah, yeah he's the guy who voted against McCarthy, right? <laughs> that, that McCarthy, you know, whatever he did, he tried to slam dunk him in the hallway. I, I, I kind of miss my Kevin. He, he's so, so shallow, so what he is. He's almost, in, in an odd sense, he's almost genuine. Because he's such a genuine nothing that I think there's a point when you, you're so duplicitous, you actually, he doesn't even fake it. I mean, telling her that he, the guy wasn't eating, so I had to go see him. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 I, I miss you, Kevin. I kind of, in, in, in Mike Johnson, uh, if anybody wants it, I have a YouTube video uh, explaining Mike Johnson. This guy is a, is, we don't even, we can't appreciate the level of disaster that he is, but it's going to unfold right in front of our eyes. I have no idea what they were thinking when they made him speaker. None. Not in, not, not in terms of his experience, his ability, his worldview, anything. You know, I mean, you know this. You know, congressional politics is much better than I do. That that's a hard job. It requires it a, a lot of skill and a lot of experience, and you know, it, it, it it's difficult to navigate. This guy is a giant fool. Yep. I'll promise you. And it's, it, it's, 
I don't know what they were thinking. They had to, I guess they had to do something. Desperate people do desperate oh, things. They, they were desperate. That was exactly right. It was a very hard job. Uh, you got to have a lot of skills, none of which he has ever displayed. It's also, again, to go back to what we're talking about investigations, you got to have a very talented staff. I mean, the two Democratic speakers who were the best, you know, since Rayburn were Tip O'Neill, who had some of the most talented people I've ever known. You know, the number, what, the number two or three policy person on Tip O'Neill's staff is, is, later became Treasury Secretary and now is Ambassador to Israel. Uh, and, it was, and Nancy Pelosi had an incredible staff. And on the other side, John Boehner had a pretty good staff. Uh, Mikey Johnson yeah, is totally ill-prepared for this, and he doesn't have the people around him to do it. Uh, it a thousand percent. And, and, but it, it permeates deeper than the speaker's office. And, you know, we, talk, you know, we talked about Comer's right. staff being a, right. a, a pack of rubes. I mean, that's all they are. And, I, you know, again, if, if this was something on the Democratic side, people would complain publicly. This is stupid. You can't have these people. What are you talking about? You know, I, I don't know, but, I mean, they, they, these, these, they're buffoons. They just are. It, it, it's, well, it's partisan. Gosh, okay, I am. It doesn't matter. They're still buffoons. All right? They just are. And he's the biggest buffoon of, of, of them all. I don't, I, is he a bigger buffoon than Comey? I, not, I mean, Comer. I, I don't know because he had more chance to exhibit his buffoonery, but I, I, it's, it's a good question. We've got to monitor this. You know, down, James, so. I have no ties any longer to Kevin McCarthy, who I used to know pretty well. Uh, I've got a, my guess is that what he's sitting back right now and thinking is, okay, it, it's going to be everything you said it is. And the Democrats are actually likely to take control of the House. And he's going to come back and run for Republican leader and maybe get it. Now, you know, uh, I, I, I don't have any inside knowledge of that. But Mike Johnson is not in the next Congress, if not sooner, Mike Johnson is not going to be the Speaker or the Republican leader in the House of Representatives. No. And, and by the way, I, you know what? He might be the best that they can do. Oh, <laughs> Think <wow>. about that. <laughs> he might come back and he might be the, 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 the they can't do anybody. When, when a, a political party has reached a point where the best you can do is Kevin McCarthy, well, that's the best you can do. <laughs> <laughs> that might be I the agree. case. Okay, <laughs> we, we, we got to get Liz Cheney on this show in the next, uh, in the next week or two. I, I, will, I will text, I'll, I'll text okay. Kara and say, you know, I'm an open invitation. But I mean, I'll tell you, when they picked up that Cobra, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that, that, they made it. That, that was a they made a big error. And if anybody thinks that Liz Cheney is just kind of packing the bags and had a say and is, you know, going to go with living Jackson Hole, no. She is going to stick, she's going to stick pins in that doll for the rest and of her life. she is one they tough, do, they, tough they do. hombre. She is very tough. She is wicked-ass smart. People, you know, forget she's a University of Chicago trained lawyer. You know, she, she's got, she knows Washington left and right, obviously. And they have fucked with her. And that is a big, big, big error. I don't know who ever thought that would be a good idea. You know, it, Trump and then they all jumped in and it, she ain't, she's not totally near Totally agree. Totally not agree. Near. 
James, the House is on the verge of expelling George Santos, the uh, fake congressman, at least according to his resume, uh, from New York, who's become an embarrassment to uh, all the Republicans there. What do you think? Well, if I were a Democrat, I would not vote to expel him. He's their problem. But by the way, he, he has not had due process. It's not, it's not, he's not had, you know, he's a giant embarrassment for them. He's been there this whole time. He's their problem. He's a gift that gets given. And he's much more valuable to the opposition in office than out. If they, they, they want to deal with him, let them deal with him. I, I think we ought to just say, you know what? He, he was elected. You don't have any due process. Let the voters decide. We're, we're less than a year away from an election in that congressional district. And why should a bunch of congressmen impose their will when voters can can weigh in here, uh, which, of course, they're definitely going to do, and just use him around and just take him out every day and slap him around. And, and it's them that got to get rid of him that want him out of town. I, I don't think any Democrat want that guy out of town. I don't know why you would. He's, he, he's one of the most valuable people we have in D.C., don't, don't, don't kick him out. Well, politically, I think you're right, but I, I, I disagree with your conclusion. I think he has had due process in the sense he had an ethics committee investigation. Uh, and, and this is not a legal matter. I mean, the House and Senate get to determine uh, their members. Uh, they can't deny office to a duly elected member. That was decided years ago. But when a member brings disgrace to the body, they have every right to uh, urge him to resign or expel him. I think Santos in the House and Menendez in the Senate both ought to be kicked out. But, uh, you know, I, I can't disagree with you in the politics. He's a great asset for Democrats right now. Well, right now, the, the biggest thing we got going is the politics of it. And I think every decision that we have to make, you know, going into 2024 has got to be politically driven. Are you looking to grow your business and stay resilient? Look no further than FM Global for your commercial property insurance and risk management needs. With more than 180 years of scientific research and data at our disposal, we'll work with you to engineer solutions that help protect your business today so you can prosper tomorrow. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, James Aircast is one of America's great journalists, Tim Alberta of The Atlantic. He's written a compelling, important new book, The Kingdom, Power, and Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. James, a personal recollection, four years ago, the PBS NewsHour and Politico were hosting a Democratic presidential debate. Politico said they were sending Tim Alberta. There was a little bit of who's he. Tim was superb in that debate, and no one in journalism today asked that question. Tim, you grew 
grew up in the evangelical church. Your dad was a pastor. It was central to your life. Today, you write that the evangelical church has lost its way. How, why, and when? Well, Al, thanks for the kind words there. And James, it's, it's great to talk to you guys. Uh, I think the short answer to that question is really just understanding the proper pecking order, the proper priorities, if you will, of the Christian and, and who the Christian is called to be. Um, Jesus in the New Testament tells a parable about a man who finds a treasure buried in a field. And after he finds it, he puts it back in the ground, he goes off, he sells everything he owns, and he takes the money, and he comes back and he buys the field. And the point of that parable is that the kingdom of God, that treasure, is worth everything, and that nothing else on earth, uh, not our possessions, not our careers, not our country, not even our family, can compare. Those things are okay to love, but they must be loved secondarily. The problem in the church today is that so many Christians are thinking about their faith identity through the lens of their political identity, their cultural tribe, their national allegiance, rather than the other way around. In other words, Jesus commands his followers time and time and time again that, you know, in order to gain your life, you must first lose it. And that all of those other identities, those affiliations, those allegiances, they should be considered through the context of your faith. And the entire equation now has been inverted where so many American conservative Christians view themselves as Americans and as conservatives first rather than as Christians first. Tim, you know, you, you tell this story so well, and it happened before 2016 and Donald Trump, but it's hard to find a man less like Jesus than Trump. Uh, yet he has owned the evangelicals and the religious right. There have been notable exceptions, the late Michael Gerson, Pete Weiner, Russell Moore, as well as you. Uh, but these leaders have to know he's not real. He talked about uh, Corinthians 2 and in 2016. He said the Bible along with the Art of the Deal were his favorite books and he couldn't remember anything he'd ever read in it. Um, so for these people, when it comes to Trump, they're willing to accept any personal behavior, right? You know, and I think, Al, understanding the why of that has been a, a, a labor of love for me, not always, I suppose, a labor of love, sometimes a labor of, of loathing, if I'm being honest. It's, it's, been, it's been hard to kind of unpack this alliance between Trump and the evangelical movement. And it's very personal because these are people who are my friends and my family members and my community, my tribe, as it were. I think there are two things that have to be emphasized. First, there is a very real and pervasive fear in the evangelical world, whether you think it's complete nonsense or not, I'm just stating it as a reality. There is a fear that the secular 
left and and the uh, the a, a government and a culture that is hostile towards Christianity more so than at any time in this country's history, that they are coming for the church and, and that they are coming for Christians and that they are going to sort of coordinate an assault on Christianity in America, which, by the way, is why the COVID-19 pandemic was such an inflection point, because all of these blue state governors who ordered houses of worship to close down, even for some very short period of time, that felt like the apocalypse for a lot of these Christians who had spent decades marinating in that sort of end times rhetoric. So understanding that threat, that under siege mentality is really important to to the context here. And I think the other thing I would add is that when you believe that your way of life is under attack, when you believe that you're under siege, when you believe that these are the end times and that there's this cosmic battle between good versus evil, suddenly all bets are off in terms of who you're willing to ally yourself with. You, you, you know, you, you have Christians who, like Robert Jeffress, the pastor of the massive megachurch in Dallas, who basically said, look, at this point, we don't need the holiest guy. We, we don't need the, the most Christ-like guy to defend us. We, meet, we need the toughest, meanest SOB that we can find. And in some way, as backward as it might sound, Donald Trump not being a Christian, Donald Trump not being restrained by the, the, the etiquette or, or the principles or the virtues uh, preached in the New Testament, in some way that has empowered him and that has made him sort of the perfect fit for this moment of such fear on the Christian right. Right. Well, they're under threat and they have a president, whether you agree or disagree with him, who is, I think, one of the most genuinely Christian uh, people uh, we've had in the White House probably since Jimmy Carter. But that doesn't matter. I, I guess they would come back and say to you, as I'm sure they did in your book, Tim Alberta, uh, that as Tom Metzl's written, they are now the most powerful bloc in the Republican Party. They will claim... Rightfully, they got much of their agenda under Trump. The new Speaker of the House is from their ranks. They'd say, hey, Tim Alberta, it's paying off. It's definitely paying off. And look, you know, Donald Trump campaigned in 2016 very explicitly on a promise that if he was elected, that Christians would have power. That's what he said. And then he campaigned in 2020. He even ratcheted up a little bit. He said, look... Uh, Joe Biden is going to hurt God if he's elected. I mean, he, he really tried to frame the 2020 election in these, you know, cosmic spiritual terms. And the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump, more than George W. Bush, more than George H.W. Bush, more than Ronald Reagan even, who was, of course, elected with the help of the moral majority, Donald Trump did empower Christians politically in ways that no previous Republican president had. And he gave them a seat at the table. He brought them into the you know, innermost sanctum. He positioned Christians to sort of fight in this culture war that no other Republican president had. Uh, but the question is, to what end, right? Uh, if, if you are a Bible-believing Christian— if you're someone who's serious about your theology, I challenge you to look throughout the scriptures and tell me where any of that matters. What, what, where are we instructed to, 
to use the church as a staging ground to win the culture wars or to use the church to win elections or to gain more cultural, social, political power. In fact, what we see throughout human history, throughout the last 2,000 years anyway, is that time and time and time again, you guys, wherever Christians have been the most oppressed, the most persecuted, wherever they have been in positions uh, where they are completely estranged and at the margins and outside of power, that has been the place where Christianity has spread the fastest and where it has had the most appeal. Christianity is inherently a countercultural movement. So to try and take Christianity and merge it with the power of the state is just a tragic mistake, and it's been a mistake since Constantine, you know, 1,700 years ago. You know, James is going to pick up on a lot of this and elaborate on it. And let me move from Constantine to Jerry Falwell, Jr. Uh, the Catholic, the, as the Catholic Church has, the evangelical church ha has been racked by sex scandals, including a figure in your book, Jerry Falwell, Jr. How much has that contributed, if at all, does it matter to their declining involvement and interest of young people? I think that the correlation is awfully strong, Al, because here's the thing. Um, I had a wonderful experience listening to an Australian theologian who teaches now at Wheaton College. His name is John Dixon. He's a brilliant man. Um, he's done a lot of work in the social sciences, and he's also a brilliant theologian. And he was giving a speech talking about how the single biggest change he's witnessed in public life, uh, both in Australia and in America, as it pertains to religion over the last 30 or 40 years, is that whereas Christians used to be disliked by the public because they were too self-righteous, they were too pious, they were too holier than thou, he said, the reason Christians are disliked by the public today is because they are actively wicked. And understanding that perception shift, in other words, uh, the younger generation now, when they turn against organized religion, it's primarily because they believe organized religion to be a racket and they believe these Christian leaders to be hypocrites and, and charlatans and totally insincere about the message that they're spreading. And they themselves, those leaders, you know, the Jerry Falwell Juniors, they have become a barrier to entry for, for that younger generation. Whereas at least with their parents' generation, if they chose not to go to church, if they kept their distance from organized Christianity, it was more about the doctrine, more about the theology. There's a whole body of social science to show that 30 or 40 years ago, unbelieving Americans still held a very, very high opinion of the church because of the social work, because of the values and the virtues that were taught by the church. And that dynamic has completely shifted. You now see in all of the available public polling that unbelieving Americans have incredibly negative views of evangelicalism specifically. And I have to think that much of that owes to the sex scandals and to the corruption and to the lying and the grifting and to the explicit political involvement that seems to undermine so much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. James Carville. 
So, so Tim, I'm going to ramble a bit here. That's the bad news. The good news is you can speak as long as you want because it's, it's a podcast. I had a very religious upbringing for a Catholic. I lived in a rural place. Our entire life was revolved around the church. We went to mass every Sunday. We went to Catholic schools. My cousin was a priest. Yeah, you know, I can tell you how many funerals I've been to in the church and weddings. And you just can't imagine what a central force that the Catholic Church was in, in, in my life, in my brain. And I kind of feel a little bit left out. I was actually never molested. I mean, <laughs> it was something wrong with me. <laughs> uh, and so you, and that, it's undoubtable that religious affiliation and church attendance are, are, are through the floor. It, it, you can just look at the statistics. It's inarguable. And young people, this is just not a fact. This is not something that they think about. I mean, some do. I mean, I taught the community college. I taught Tulane. I taught LSU. It's just, it, it, yeah, there, but there's some, but not very many. It, it, and if you bring it up, they look at you like you're crazy. Now, it, it, and then you hear people comment and say, America is losing its faith. It, we've become enamored with material things. Uh, people are on the internet and they're not paying attention to the traditions and the foundational aspect that religion has in, in our society. And that's one view and that's a view they have. But then again, if you ask a 25-year-old, they say, why in the hell would I want to be part of that shit? <laughs> okay, these are, these are thieving, you know, uh, Eric Hoffer, the, the philosopher longshoreman, I think Reagan gave him the Medal of Freedom sometime in the early 80s, said, I think the truest thing I've ever heard. And that is every movement begins as a cause, morphs into a business, and ends up a racket. Thank you. That's your whole book is about a racket. No less. Good guy. Jesus comes up, who's I've, I've actually... As I've gotten older, I've become more anti-religious and more pro-Jesus. I don't know if it makes sense, but I'm beginning to think that the two are not overly connected. Well, that's a that's a heck of an observation, James, because, you know, religion is uh, in many ways about, about rules, about strictures, about policies, um, but Jesus is about relationship. Now, to be clear, uh, Jesus built the church and Jesus commands his followers to be in community with one another, with fellow believers. And so I think the church is an important, uh, a vitally important and essential institution and an institution governed by, by Jesus. However, I think uh, what we've seen in the church for so long to the point you were just making, it has cheapened the church. It has, it has made the church into the, the, every bit the sort of broken, fallible, corrupted, compromised institution. You know, when, when you think about the great institutional distrust in American life now, you know, the, the banking system, the political system, law enforcement, uh, higher education, the, you know, the, go up and down the list, right? Uh, the media, right. don't get me started on my profession. Um, right. The church is ranked lower than most of those. And again, What's interesting is that when you talk with younger people, James, as I have, um, 
if you talk to younger people, and, and again, there's some pretty good, pretty fascinating social science around this. If you talk to them about the teachings of Jesus, they're incredibly interested. They're, they're really compelled and they want to know more. But as soon as you associate that with organized institutional Christianity, they, they, they step away. They, they, they lose yeah. interest. And that in many ways is what I'm trying to address here in the book, that it's not sustainable. That if, that if, if you are someone who truly does treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if you believe that witnessing to that gospel and taking the message of that gospel to the ends of the earth is your call as a Christian, then you need to think seriously about the harm being done by your political rhetoric, by your sort of cultural behavior, by the message you're sending otherwise. Because uh, to so many people who might otherwise be really very interested in wanting to know more about having a relationship with Jesus, they see you and they see your church as something that they want nothing to do with. And, 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 and I think it's the older generation specifically that is having a really hard time getting out of their own way in that respect. Well, you know, Tim, uh, one of the principles of my life, it's never a good idea to argue with Gary Wills. <laughs> and he said, the social gospel, quote, which is the gospel, I mean, the social gospel, comma, which is the gospel, comma, right? I mean, that's, that's what the whole thing, it, isn't it really about our relationship with each other, how we treat each other? You know, and, and you talk about the early Christians, they would all eat together, they were very communal. You know, it, it, it was a, a, a nice thing. And, well, and again, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no I, look, I think, I think what's interesting, James, is that... You know, the New Testament model that we see throughout the Gospels is uh, sort of abundant grace shown towards the outsiders, towards the unbelievers. You know, Jesus at one point is eating with, with prostitutes and tax collectors and, and sinners of the worst sort in that cultural setting. And the Jewish religious elite are just flabbergasted by this, right? And they say, what, what is he doing? How, how is your teacher spending time, much less breaking bread, which really held significance back then with these people? And Jesus overhears them and, and he says, you know, I didn't come to deal with the righteous, but with sinners. The, 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 the healthy are not in need of a doctor. It's the sick who are in need of a doctor. And throughout the New Testament uh, and in Paul's writings to the early church, there is incredible grace and kindness and and decency shown toward people outside the church, including people outside the church who are very hostile and who are terrible in their treatment of these Christians. But do you know who Jesus and who Paul and who Peter and others uh, treat with strict accountability? Those inside the church, the Christians. So I think the question you're asking a moment ago, James, as far as, you know, what is the gospel? We in the modern American context have taken that New Testament model and we have inverted it. In other words, we 
rally around everyone inside the church when they are besieged, when, when, when our pastor is guilty of a sex scandal, or when some religious leader says or does something completely abhorrent, we defend them, we rally around them. But our perceived enemies outside the church, we treat with utter contempt, and we give them no grace. And, and in so doing, we, we sort of have created this this massive chasm and this distrust between the church and the outside world, when in fact the great mission of the church is to evangelize to that outside world and to take that gospel to those who do not believe. The, the, one of the great ironies in all of this for evangelicals, you know, there's a verb in there, right, is to evangelize. And it is almost impossible in this modern context to evangelize, to take that message to the outside world because they hate the messengers. Well, you, you, you know, if I got a text right now, I'm, I'm 60 miles east of New Orleans, and the text said, you're not going to believe this, but Jesus Christ is in New Orleans, I would not have to ask where he is. I would find him right away. He's in the goddamn French Quarter, okay? I know that. I, I don't, I wouldn't have to look for him. I would get in my car and I would drive to the French Quarter and I'd say to somebody, have you seen the man? Because <laughs> right? the one place I know he's not, you, you know, I, I, I know enough, I've, I've studied enough, I've, I've read the Gospels enough uh, to know that. And, and I, I still, to this day, I still find comfort and elegance in in. A lot, you know, particularly the New Testament. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's a it's a beautiful document, and I, I love reading about it. Uh, you know, my brother died. I know you uh, you wrote eloquently this morning about your dad in in the Atlantic, and I, I started reading, and, and I, I came to the conclusion, man, this shit's too hard. I mean, honestly, if somebody comes and you know asks you for your shirt, you give them your coat. I mean, he's pretty clear. It's not, it's not, it's not very, the, his message is not very ambiguous at all. And, and my favorite is the, the, the quote about easier for the camel to pass through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man in the kingdom of heaven. They say, oh, no, no, what they're talking about is the Jerusalem gate. And if you came in and your donkey had too many goods, you had to, it was so narrow, you had to let some off. I think he was really kind of saying that money is, 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 is really not what's going to get you to heaven. I think, isn't it pretty clear about that? Well, listen, to that specific question, uh, I, I think that you can pick out a number of different pieces of scripture, including the one I cited earlier, the parable of the treasure that's buried in the field. Um, right. or, or you can look at the exchange Jesus has with this young man who says uh, to Jesus, you know, I, I've done everything. Uh, what else must I do to get into the kingdom of heaven? You know, I, I honor my mother and father. I keep the Sabbath. I, I follow all the commands. What else must I do? And Jesus says, there's just one thing you have great wealth, go sell it all, and then you will have the kingdom of heaven. And the young man goes away dejected. Now, you can, you, you can look at all of these teachings, and you can draw a couple of conclusions. One of them is most certainly about wealth and, and the corrupting influence of wealth. But when Jesus says uh, that 
that, that no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Actually, the original translation there is mammon, right? You cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon has traditionally been understood by, uh, by biblical scholars to mean anything that comes into competition as an earthly idol with God. Uh, in fact, there were some early scholars who believed that Mammon was an alias for Satan himself. So when we think about the causes of idolatry, money, of course, influence, fame, I think one of the things that I try to revisit time and time again in this book is that country, national idolatry, this ideal of America as a covenant nation that has a, a consecrated relationship with God. If you believe that, and if you start to believe that God's plan for the ages hinges on who wins the next presidential election, you are suddenly going to find yourself uh, sort of in a, in a in a weird theological vortex where you are assigning religious justification and religious significance to everything that your preferred partisan team, red or blue, does uh, in a given day. And you're right, James, the Bible is very, very clear. There are some passages of scripture that are really complicated and really ambiguous, and they can be read a lot of different ways. But the question of how we are to conduct ourselves as believers, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, love your neighbor as yourself. There is nothing ambiguous about any of those teachings. And unfortunately, in the modern evangelical moment, when you say those things, people sort of roll your eyes and they say, "Well, you're woke. You know, you're 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 just you're soft. You're 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 a you're you know you're a leftist. You're you're and, and that's when the words of Jesus have become nothing more than uh, you know just the the the, the woke ramblings of the uh, of the pacifistic Christian who would let the left run roughshod over them in the culture wars, I think we've got a real problem. Yeah. So turn back to Alan. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, Tim. Thank you so much for your work. Tim, my wife and I just attended Rosalind Carter's memorial service. Her husband, Jimmy Carter, was a devout born-again Christian. Uh, he talked openly and proudly about it. He taught Sunday school. And he and Rosalind prayed together right up until the end. Apart from the policies or politics, rather than Donald Trump, shouldn't he have been the model for Christians today, for devout Christians today? Wasn't that the road not taken by evangelicals? You know, Al, it's such a great question because there's so much to unpack there. Of course, Jimmy Carter in 1976, his presidential campaign in many ways is coinciding, as I write in some great detail in chapter three of my book, right. coinciding with the birth of what would become the moral majority and, and with the birth of what would become Liberty University, uh, Jerry Falwell Sr.'s uh, college down in Lynchburg, Virginia. And Jerry Falwell Sr. understood, much like Donald Trump came to understand all those decades later, that to really find success in politics and in the culture wars, that you need a foil. And Jimmy Carter became a foil for Jerry Falwell, for the moral majority, yeah. for the sort of uh, nascent Christian conservative movement, even though he sat in the pews on Sunday mornings, even though he taught 
Sunday school, even though he was a sincere believer, a self-identified evangelical. Um, because he was of a different partisan persuasion, they abused him. They, they vilified him. They, they othered him. Um, they turned him into an enemy rather than simply saying, look, this is a brother in the Lord we happen to have just some basic philosophical disagreements with. They chose to go nuclear on Jimmy Carter. And I think it is to the great shame of that movement and of Jerry Falwell Sr.'s legacy that they treated him that way. And what, you know, whatever his performance in office, whatever his uh, political failures, uh, Jimmy Carter's, that is, um, this is someone who has led an exemplary personal life and, uh, and someone who should be treated with and ultimately remembered as, in many ways, a paragon of what it yes. means to, 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 to walk humbly uh, and to show the love of Christ to the world around you. I would just, I would close, Al, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that one of the great sins of Jimmy Carter in the eyes of Jerry Falwell Sr. was giving that interview to Playboy magazine uh, back in, uh, I believe it 70, was... 76. 76, yeah. Yep. It was while he was running, yeah. Right. So it was 76. And uh, Jerry Falwell Sr. just found that to be unforgivable. I mean, he went to the National Press Club and held a press conference about it. He, he lampooned Carter for months on his television program over it. And you fast forward 40 years, and when Donald Trump was desperately in need of uh, an endorsement in the evangelical world, it was Jerry Falwell Jr. who comes to Trump's aid, who goes to New York in a big meeting with evangelical leaders, and who endorses Trump and vouches for Trump and says that Trump is just like King David. He's a man after God's own heart, right? And then where do they go? They go to Trump Tower. They pose for a photo together, and what's in the background behind them? A framed cover of Playboy magazine on the wall. Wow, I did. That's incredible, isn't it? Did they bring the pool boy? Oh, well. And if that is if that isn't the ultimate full circle evolutionary arc or devolutionary arc, I suppose, to understand the sort of moral collapse of the far right Christian conservative movement, then I don't know what is. It sure is. You know, I went to a Southern Baptist college, albeit a pretty liberal one, in the 1960s. And there were a number of prominent Southern Baptists like Brooks Hayes and others who fought for racial justice and fairness. That was their, 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 their theology may have been conservative, but they really were, were great on that issue. That's missing in today's uh, religious right, isn't it? Yeah, there's a, yes. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things missing. Um, I, I mean, I, Al, I think at its core, when you think about what's missing, I mean, James flicked at this a few minutes ago, and I don't want to just, you know, beat a dead horse here. But when you think about what's missing, Jesus is missing. I mean, fundamentally, when you spend time in the Gospels, you know, I had a pastor say to me once that the Bible is meant to be a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and see what what we've gotten wrong and and where our heart has led us astray. Uh, you know, the psalmist says, search me, O Lord, right? Like we are, we are 
imperfect. We are flawed human beings. We stray and we sin and we need badly to be uh, teachable and we need to have a capacity for self-correction. And so you read through the gospels and you learn about this figure of Jesus and you see how he treated people. You see the way in which he went appealing to the leaders of the day and, and, and how he handled uh, terrible treatment. And, and really, you, you read his promises, not his predictions, not his guesses, but his promises of persecution. He said, listen, if you follow me, they will hate you. The world will hate you, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In other words, he is training his followers systematically to be able to, to go out into a world that might be hostile towards them and to love that world and to treat that world with, with grace and, and respect and love. And in so many ways, those teachings, that example is just unrecognizable in much of the movement that we see today. Yeah. Let me ask one more because it's always fascinated me, and I go back to James. Ralph Reed, uh, I first interviewed him on Meet the Press 31 years ago to this day. Uh, he was smooth, he was smart, he was seemingly sincere, and he was a rising star. Uh, and since then, we've seen the other side, tied up in the Jake, Jack Abramoff money-grumming scandal, wholly owned by Donald Trump. He tried to persuade me back in 16 that Trump was more committed to the black community than Jack Kemp. Uh, Ralph, though, is a still a big wheel uh, in that Christian movement, but he seems to me he personifies, maybe better than anyone today, the triumph of money and power over faith. Yes. And look, I, I, uh, I spend a couple of chapters of the book with Ralph, and uh, I've known Ralph for a long time. And Ralph is someone who is uh, incredibly talented. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly bright. He's incredibly articulate. What Ralph has decided to do is to use those gifts and I think exploit the fears, the grievances, the resentment, the insecurity of Christians. Uh, he has chosen to manipulate and to enlist others to manipulate rather than, rather than uh, using the platform that he has to, uh, to preach the, the, the true, pure version of the gospel. Um, I'm afraid that, that Ralph has used it as a weapon politically and culturally. And um, it's sad because I like Ralph and I've enjoyed talking with Ralph and I've had some painful conversations with Ralph where I've confronted him over this. And I think in his quiet moments and in his heart of hearts, uh, I think he knows that, uh, that what he's been a part of has been wrong and has been a distortion of what Christ calls us to be. Um, but this is why Jesus warns time and time and time again. I mean, I guys, I just, it's ad nauseum and I, I'm sorry for being, he, just Jesus warns against 
influence, against fame, against money, constantly talking about how these things will become your idols and how they will pull you away from me and how you cannot serve two masters, right? Either we believe that. Now, listen, if there are people listening who are not Christians, then they, they don't believe that. That's, that. that's fine. But if you are a Christian, if you profess to follow Jesus Christ, and believe that he is the son of God, believe that he took on flesh as God to become fully God and fully man to serve as the mediator between a broken humanity and a perfect God who created this world and created mankind in his own image and and yearns to be in relationship with us. If you believe that, then you have to believe what he says, that you cannot serve two masters. You have to believe that when he fled from the people when they tried to make him king. And he said, no, 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 my kingdom is not of this world. You have to either believe that and act on it. If you don't, then I just don't know that we belong to the same religion fundamentally because it's just that stark. It's just that unambiguous, the message that we are delivered in the New Testament. James Carville. So, Tim, I, you know, I can imagine, you know, it's growing up in rural Louisiana, my mind would just go back and think about if I was somewhere in history. And my favorite, if I could go back to any point in history, it, it would be when they were going to stone the prostitute. And Jesus said, ye were as out in sin, throw the first stone. And everybody well, fuck it, I'm not. <laughs> and I, I just think that the, the teaching of that is just so stunningly magnificent. But if it was the second place I would like to be is at the moment that Galileo was convicted by the tribunal of cardinals, you know what he said? Et pur se move, it still moves. <laughs> and I think so much of modern religion is just has a terrible time with the Enlightenment, all right? It just, it, it just really, the Renaissance, it, 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 they never could adjust. And it's totally consistent with being a good Christian. It's totally consistent with anything that Jesus said. And, the, and again, because I, I never argued with Gary Wells, he makes the point that the least religious generation in American history would have found us. Because they were all sons of the Enlightenment. And I, I, you know, I think so much of this is still a reaction to the Enlightenment. I, I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? Well, look, I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that in some sense, Western Christianity has always been in conflict with progress. Um, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily a coincidence that uh, some of the most explosive growth you have seen around the world in terms of Christianity in the last, say, 50 years has taken place in developing nations with, um, with no food and no, no clean water and no electricity. Um, there is a simplicity to the gospel. Um, and I think in cultures where they live simply, uh, 
it is uh, it is easier to receive and easier to practice. More importantly, when you think about the tensions in the American Christian context, for example, the Scopes trial, uh, and and you and you think about sort of this clash between technology and and, and innovation and progress and Christianity. Um, look, some of the most brilliant thinkers in American history and in modern American life are devout Christians. I mean, Francis Collins, who ran the National Institutes of Health, I mean, he mapped the human genome for crying out loud. He is a, he is a sincere and serious evangelical Christian. Um, so there is, of course, a way to marry uh, the, the uh, theological doctrinal beliefs uh, of uh, of the Christian faith with the understanding of the modern world. Um, there is, however, I think to your point, James, also a almost a, 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 a reflexive and anti-intellectual streak that runs deep uh, in the evangelical world and that really has its roots in the fundamentalist tradition where folks believe that any sort of uh, anything that could be construed to be uh, replacing God or, or sort of downplaying God or, or, or threatening the sort of the, the notions of, of divine creationism and design that, that, that they have to be sort of rejected and, and, and fought against and, and confronted and kept at bay. And that's why I say in some ways, uh, you know, the, the, the healthiest forms of Christianity that we've seen have been throughout the ages in areas that had very little, not just, you know, in the sort of modern third world sense, but like for centuries and centuries, people in prisons, people who have been suffering greatly and who have no material uh, uh, wealth whatsoever have found enormous comfort in a message that in this modern American context tends to, tends to sort of, uh, uh, run into some of our, some of our other everyday, uh, interests and, and beliefs and creates a sort of, uh, a, a weird zero sum, uh, spiritual conflict. If you will, in this country. So uh, I'm just take too much time. You know, we'll one more question. We'll, we'll let you go. There's so much I want to talk to you about. So uh, uh, something that I think your dad or my cousin, Father John, who must be 82, 83, still goes to Honduras three weeks out of the year, and you know helps them build houses and that kind of thing. There's this whole dominionism and this kind of Michael hope thing of. Uh, Francis Schaeffer and Dunwoody, and, it's just, and it, they still exist. And it's a, it, they, they don't like democracy. They they want to establish a, a, a kingdom on earth or something. Who, who are these people? And what is it that, what's their ultimate goal? But they're, they're, they're around and they're, they're, they're not, they're, they're more than just annoying. They're, they're there. They're, and, they're definitely around and they're definitely more than just annoying, James. I mean, this is, listen, um, I don't think people realize it. I don't think people want to realize it. But there is a powerful, organized, well-financed faction of Christians in this country who are intent on 
merging church and state who believe to their core that we should, in fact, operate essentially as a theocracy, that uh, Christianity should be state religion, that the Bible is a governing text. Um, You know, and and that's that's a scary proposition because here's the thing. Uh, Two things can be true, right? The founders of this nation, many of them, were Christians. They were they were they were uh, serious theological Christians, um, and yet those same people, in all of their writings, all their remarks that we have recorded, they were horrified by the idea of state religion. They wanted nothing to do with theocracy. Many of them had fl- their families had fled from the old world because of religious persecution. They 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 whatever belief you have in the sort of Judeo-Christian founding of this country uh, in terms of the ethos, in terms of the ethics, in terms of the morals and the virtues and everything else, these people wanted nothing to do with this project we are now dealing with, which is very much on the march. And it's and you had better believe, people don't recognize this, these are folks who have the ear of Donald Trump. And if Donald Trump is elected in 2024, uh, I'm not saying that you're going to suddenly see the endorsement of state religion. But when Donald Trump a few weeks ago on the campaign trail said that he was thinking about imposing a religious litmus test on migrants coming to this country, that they would stop letting in anybody who's not a Christian. So no Jews, no Muslims, no Hindus, no atheists. You have to be a Christian if you're going to migrate to this country. That's not just Trump you know, mouthing off. That's something that he's been talking to people about. And and, and we as Christians uh, and, and we as non-Christians, uh, for those listening, who want to continue to nurture and sustain a pluralistic society, we need to take very seriously the threat uh, that comes from these individuals. Yeah, I, I, I've just enjoyed this so much, and I, I hope that you, you're in a unique position, given your skill level and your experience and the credibility you have, to to put these people front and center and let people know that you know, some holy rollers want to go past some goddamn snakes around in East Tennessee. That's their own business. I mean, I think it's kind of ridiculous, but they're not hurting anybody. These people are coming for your democracy. They're coming, they're gonna, they want to expel 75% of the physics faculty at MIT and Berkeley. I mean, that's what you're going to be doing. Well, I, think you're, just, I think you're doing that, Tim. And I want to say we're going on five years and we have never had a better guest. Uh, we went on long, but it has been so informative. And for all you out there listening, every one of you, if you care about politics, government, or America's moral pulse. You owe it to yourself to get Tim Alberta's book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, uh, American Evangelism in an Age of Extremism. You really do. I want everybody to either order or go to the bookstore uh, in the next day or two. Uh, it's, it's just eye-opening. Tim, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. You guys are too kind. Thank you, gentlemen. I, I think the world of you both. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Yeah. You're doing important shit, man. Keep it up. You sure are. Thank you, sir. Hey, 
James, now for the outrage of the week. When Don Fletcher, a reporter for the Atmore Alabama News, received, totally legitimate to receive it, copies of a grand jury subpoena, he did what any good reporter would do. The subpoena wasn't for him. He checked out what this was all about. And a couple of weeks later, the paper published a story about an investigation of school officials for misuse of federal COVID funds. That's what a newspaper is supposed to do. But rather than accolades or award, wards, Fletcher and his publisher were arrested and District Attorney Stephen Billy charged them with illegally disclosing grand jury information at a penalty of up to three years in jail. This is only the latest in a series of efforts to intimidate small news organizations. Also, several justices on the Supreme Court want to change a 60-year decision that gives news organizations more protection from lawsuits that could bankrupt them. From District Attorney Billy to those justices and even worse, Donald Trump, they really threaten the press already beset with financial challenges. My only counsel to them, which I'm sure they won't accept, go read the First Amendment. Well, I, I think next week we're having Professor Marcy Hamilton uh, at the, from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Uh, and I, we definitely want to talk about this because she is literally one of the five leading authorities. Yes. And, all of academia on these First Amendment questions. And I, I, this is one thing where I, I share what you said 100%. We might have a different opinion on Nikki Haley or we might have a different opinion on George Santos, but we're simpatico here. Right. My outrage, I'm, I'm going to take a, a little license here and mention one before I get to my main outrage. I read in the paper where Pope Francis kicked that fat-ass Cardinal Burke out of his house in Rome, and I, I texted a, a friend of mine, a well-known friend of mine, another, another very Catholic, and I said, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about going back to Mass. He said, let me know when you go, I'll go with you. All hail to Pope Francis, this fat piece of shit. But that, my, my, my real outrage is this, and it's been a few minutes talking about it. it as long as I've been around Washington, there's always been a kind of unspoken rule is children are not combatants. You, you, you leave people's kids out of it. And you and I, Judy and Mary, we have some experience with this because if you are a well-known person, you're right, your kids get to go to the front of the line in Disney World. Or you, you know, you get to go to vacation in Europe and a good table in Russia. But there's a lot of angst. For, for young people with, with, with well-known parents. And it, it, it's just uncomfortable for some of them, but you don't use it. I mean, you know, Rush Limbaugh famously attacked Chelsea Clinton, but that's Rush Limbaugh to give you an idea of quality of human being that does this. But Mike Johnson has done something that I, I find, and I'm, I'm going to stay on this, I, I find repugnant. He's using his children as props in his war on women. Now, First of all, he has a daughter. He takes a picture of her with him signing the, the purity and the chastity pledge. I mean, I think these are some of the most destructive things that you can imagine. But it look about parental rights. If somebody wants to raise their child that way, they have perfect right to do that. Don't put the child front and center in your walk. Then he has famously he has a 17-year-old son, okay? He he has something to call covenant eyes, where they get to spy on each other's computer habits, so they know that they're not 
watching porn. I, I, I think at the core of this, he's trying to convince this 17-year-old <coughs> not, not to, uh, he can imagine what I'm getting ready to say, so I'll just leave it unsaid. And it's like, you know, not, you're using your children as political props for your war on females. How, how, how disgusting can you be? Can't you leave your kids out of this? They have difficult time enough dealing with all of the stuff, that, the terrible stuff that young people have to deal with today. And, and you do this. And it, 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 it really goes to the heart of what kind of human being you are. And frankly, you're just not a very good human being. Boy, nothing to disagree with there. All right, now for our questions from our very smart listeners. James, there's a couple from your town. Red in New Orleans says, could you all comment on Jeff Landry's proposed policy of withholding water infrastructure funds for New Orleans unless the DA enforced the state's abortion ban? James, do you know anything about that? I read something about it. Uh, first of all, you said it. this is lives you're dealing with. All right, this is like, so you, you just can't imagine what a precarious place that New Orleans is this day. Now, I'll make another point. Is in 1900, New Orleans was 50 miles further away from the Gulf. New Orleans was responsibly located. The French, when they, they surveyed it and they put it there, it was actually made a lot of sense. But as a result of policy, all right, of, of government policy for, that has vastly improved the lives of people not in New Orleans. Our coastline is under uh, uh, more than assault. It's under the you know, constant attack. We're getting closer and closer to the Gulf. And to hold this up, you know, if, 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 if you pass, Louisiana legislature is, is, is dominant. It, it could pass a law even uh, DeSantis would like fire these prosecutors that didn't go along with him. It was a pretty odious thing to do. But to hold up life-saving place that is so instrumental to not just people in New Orleans, in New Orleans metropolitan areas, essential to the entire, entire country. It, 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 he hasn't taken office yet. I'd be careful to give God a chance, but this is, this is just disgusting. It's awful. It, it, it really is. And, I, 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 you know, and of course, I'm sure people when, like Mike Johnson thinks that it's great that the sinful, you know, New Orleans full of, you know, gays and strippers and, you know, God knows what. Maybe they, they just did like to get rid of us. I don't know. It's a good question. You know, I think, you know, I think you're right. And I, I, it's, I'm very curious to see what the Republicans in the state legislature, and you know, there's a lot of <coughs> a, a, a lot of Republican legislators, a lot of Republican uh, police jury members, you know, parish council uh, that are really dependent on this. So it's going to be interesting to see what 
We're going to move up to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Jenny asked that she's understood that no labels would drop their running of a candidate slate if the Democrats choose someone other than Biden. So why not do that? First of all, Jenny, I I don't trust what no labels is saying. Uh, I don't trust they're going to get out if they think that Trump is going to win. I don't think they'd get out if the Democrats replace Biden. And and, and that's all. Totally separate issue, which is not going to happen, I think, unfortunately, perhaps. But uh, I, I don't buy the fact that no labels uh, would cut a deal and say, you pick someone we like, who that would be, uh, and we'll get out. Just don't buy it. But I, I am no fan of no labels. No. public couldn't be any more critical of them. I, I, I think at some level it's, it's a financial scam. But the one thing you honestly can't say about them, is that there's not a market for this. There just is. And they exist and will probably continue to exist and everybody will get their cut because there just is a market for a third party. Yeah. There just is. And you look at any poll and it's, it's evident. Yeah, it's and, always uh, bigger a year out, but it certainly is bigger now than it usually has been at this right. stage. There's no, no question. Right. You know, and it, but for Roe, yeah. it, it, it actually blew up more toward the end, but you you, you Assume. Uh, I was looking in Mississippi, which we was on bottom way. Congratulations, Brandon Presley did better than any Democrats done in Mississippi in the 20th Three points. Century. Right. It ended up three points. And the third party got 1.4, I think. Now, it didn't make the difference, but it, and she, in that, that third party had dropped out of the race. They had a notice at every polling place that she was not. She, she, they couldn't reprint the ballots, but that she had dropped out. And she still got 1.4%. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, 1.4% can cost you in a, in, in a state yeah. like Pennsylvania, a state like Wisconsin, a state like Arizona, a state like Georgia. That, and that's 1.4% of somebody who dropped out and they had the notifications in the polling places. No. This is how dangerous it really is. is. And I want to second what you said about Brandon Presley. I was cheering for him to win. My son worked for him. I didn't comment on it before the election, but they ran they ran a terrific race, and they came closer, as James said, than any Democratic candidate in the last uh, in this uh, absolutely in this century. But uh, John in Chicago, Illinois. Says the R- James, you'll like this. The RNC recently disclosed that donations are at a 2015 low and its cash on hand is only $9 million. Large donations as well as small ones are way down. The DNC reported it has $17 million on hand with the year before the election. Does this square with everyone saying Trump is either ahead or tied with Biden? You know, I, I, I think it's reflective. It, 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 you know, I think that the people get promised everything and look at the, the, the Hunter Biden stuff. And, you know, at some point, you know, even if you're that stupid, you, you say, I'm not going to write more checks. They keep telling me something's going to happen and it, it doesn't happen. They keep telling me that they're going to do something and they never do it. And it's exhaustive. Now, if the DNC has 17 million, let me tell you right now what they need to do. They need to take 14 million of that and go find out how we can, why we're having such horrific black turnout in these elections around the country, and what the hell can we do? Because if we don't do something, it's going to cost us and cost us dearly. And I, I spend, take that goddamn money and spend it and find out why, why our vote is not coming out. 
That's, that's a good, what I that's do a good suggestion. Tom, from across the pond in London, says, last week you were asked whether there was an adult who might talk to Biden about not running uh, in 2024. You couldn't come up with one, which induced me to shout at your show, Obama, Bill Clinton. Biden knows and respects both of them. Uh, they're not going to do it, uh, uh, Tom, whatever they might think privately. They're not going to do it because there's a certain fraternity of presidents. Actually, Bill Clinton flew down on the plane to the Rosalind Carter funeral and back, I assume, with Joe Biden yesterday. And one thing I will guarantee, not having been on that plane, but I'll guarantee they did not discuss Joe Biden dropping out of the race. That's just not what they do. And it's not going to be done by some adult coming in the room if it happens, which looks unlikely. It's going to be a decision that Joe and Jill Biden make themselves. Well, I, I might say this, law Democrat, and I hope I'm, I think when history looks back in the period of the spring and summer, it'll be uh, 2023. I think a, a lot of people in my party were cowards. Yeah. I, I just do. And I understand, you know, it's not ex-president's job to tell the president what to do. There's been, always been, you know, a real, real dividing line there. Uh, but, I mean, somebody somebody could have gotten together and sent somebody in. I don't know. I don't know what. I can't wait to read the campaign books. I don't want to be critical because I don't know the facts. Maybe people have. I, I, I don't know. But this, this is not optimal situation for this yeah. country. That's all I, I'm just I, saying. I agree. Christian in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, uh, ask you, James, given the way winter takes all electoral college functions, except for Maine and Nebraska, and given how close the presidential election is in the states that will decide the winner, why doesn't the Democratic Party make some sort of effort to convince some of its wasted voters to move from blowout election states to close states? Go from <laughs> New York to Pennsylvania, move up from Illinois to Wisconsin. <laughs> Well, I mean, I appreciate the thought, and you know, and I give a speech in California, and people say, well, "You know, what can we do to help?" James, I said, "Well, fucking move to Arizona." <laughs> Unfortunately, people and people say, "Gee, how can you live in a red state?" But because people live somewhere, they they have roots, and it's expensive. I I I appreciate the thought, and I I've had it before. And you hear that from time to time, and we do have a, a lot of wasted votes, but <laughs> that's the system. But maybe could, uh, I guess Pennsylvania would be the closest place that uh, they could move to. But Well, Illinois could move up to Wisconsin. I mean, Illinois borders on Wisconsin. Yeah, you know, that's not very far. Yeah. In fact, my wife is going right. up to Wisconsin to see some friend of hers that she went to school right. with and fly into right. Chicago. Yeah, you can, be middle, you can go from Chicago to Wisconsin, all kinds of different things you can it's do. It's not going to happen, uh, but it's a really interesting it, idea, and thanks for writing. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we, had, we, had, we had some spillover. Herb in Altadena, California. I'm not sure where Altadena, California is, but we'll look it up and find out. But Herb, we appreciate uh, you, you listening to us. He says, what's happening with all the people currently still in Congress who have now been proven to have supported the January 6th attack on our democracy? Have they been, have they suffered any consequences? Well, one thing that happened is one of the chief deniers was promoted to Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson. Uh, and the answer to your question, Herb, sadly is, 
There's been almost no penalty. It really is shocking. And not only do they continue to lie about the election, as Ken Buck, the outgoing conservative Colorado Republican, said, you're just lying about this stuff. Some of them, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, have even gone down to the jail uh, to to worship at the prison garb of uh, some of those uh, January 6th perpetrators. It really is disgusting. Well, you haven't listened to the J6 choir? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, what's really been interesting here is there are no shortage of Republican judges on the D.C. federal district court, all right? And this guy, I I, I know him because I had gotten some legal entanglement in his coat. It was just all all bullshit, Larry Clayman stuff, Royce Lambert. He was appointed by Reagan. He's about as right-wing a federal judge as you can be, and he can't stand these sons of bitches because he sits there and listens to the evidence. And the same thing is true with any other number of these judges on the on the D.C. District Court. I don't know what these people are saying. This was nothing. And these assholes that go and they cry in front of the judge and then they get some kind of leniency and then they go out and say, yeah, I'm glad what I did. And, the, I, and of course, Mike Johnson is going to release the tape. How much tape can you watch on January the 6th? I mean, how much is that? And what is it we don't know that we already know? I can't imagine. It was with the, one of the great massive acts of criminality in the history of the United States. Well, you're States. right. And let me, exactly let me jump exactly. on somebody else, too. Mike Turner is the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. You expect the chairman of the Intelligence Committee doesn't have to be bipartisan, but at least to uh, be a bit above the fray. He goes on television last week and says this January 6th tapes are going to prove a lot of things are wrong that the Democrats have been charging and is going to basically uh, say that uh, the Republicans are getting a bum rap. That's the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. I just don't want to know what he thinks about China or Iran or or Russia, if he's that uh, duplicitous on this. What is it that they think they're going to show? I, I mean, I, in, we thought, did, I thought that Kevin McCarthy, didn't he release it he too? Released, he he well, gave Tucker Carlson parts of it. And I guess what Johnson, I think this is right, James. I think what Johnson is doing now is, is going to release the whole thing, which is. Why not? Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what Well, I'll tell you what they'll do. They'll then selectively edit it. And they'll find, and then by selectively edit it, they'll put it out, and um, uh, it's right. And then somebody, and then you know, they'll put it right now. Forty percent of the country thinks it's a tourist visit, right? Right. And and, I can't tell you the number of times that the organizations have done the stuff that I've looked at. What's that? Of course, it's something you got thousands of people over four hours doing something. There's some people that are going to be kind of innocuous or looking around and seeing what's going on. What, what does that prove? I don't understand. I think this guy's just really stupid. I, I, I think we, we so resist stupidity is, a, is, is what's driving this, that we think there's some kind of ulterior or something to do. So I just think well, it's it stupidity that's, and, that's, and that's, it is boss right Trump. Uh, the two together is what makes him do things like this. But James, our last question is from Henry in New Orleans, 
who says if Biden's great oh, Henry gets reelected president, winning Michigan by, say, 5,000 votes. He's got to win Michigan by more than 5,000 votes, by the way, to, to, uh, to be reelected. Yeah, to what extent should Vice President Harris be credited with nudging President Biden over the finish line? You know, I, I'm not, I don't think anybody's going to confuse Vice President Harris's political skills with a, with a Clinton or Obama or somebody like that. It, it gets a little bit of a bad rap because, and I'll tell you why. So her prove I don't know, it's 33. Mm-hmm. Well, she can't get any higher than Biden, all right? That's, that's all, um, impossible. It's laws of physics. So she can't, she, she can't be any more any higher than 39 or 40 or whatever he is. And I, what I, I think her mistake, yeah, I, I think she's a bright person. Uh, I, I think a lot of stuff that you hear about her is what you hear. You always hear this about female politicians. I'm sorry, you just do. They're screechy. You know, their, their voice annoys me. I mean, I heard that same shit about Hillary all the time. And it, 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 a lot of the stuff against her is sexism. I, I'm, I'm be stunned if there's not more than a whiff of racism. Whiff. Boy. But she, right. But what she, her problem to me is not that she's not a good person, not that she's not able, not that she's not smart. She's just so staggeringly predictable. And when she first came in, this is a fact, okay? This is not anything. I know this. They were kind of searching around, you know, what should be her portfolio. Anybody that becomes vice president and in that period, they say, okay, well, you know, what am I going to base my vice presidency on? What am I going to do? And she was advised in by serious people that crime should be the issue that she takes the lead on. And, you know, and, and the answer came back. Well, we just can't do that. Why can't you? What's, what's the reason? Give me the logic of why you could not do that. Yeah. And I, I think it, 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 so she goes and does a GOTV rally at Howard. Well, great. How predictable is that? Right? So if, if, if that, if the vice president would just surprise me one time, just one time that she took something that wasn't in the standard, you know, progressive playbook and did it, I think it would, I don't, you know, I, I think it would help. I think it would have done wonders with, with her. If, if she would be holding hearings on this smash and grab shit going on, uh, I, 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 I think she'd be, her, her approval would be well, seven I points agree. higher. A lot of this is, is a lot of it is sexism. A lot of it is racism. But some of it is just she's so staggeringly breathtaking, conventional. No, I I I totally agree. Perhaps if they get do get reelected, it'll change in a second term. Let's just hope. Keep those questions coming. If we didn't get to them this week, we'll get to them next week. Thank you.
Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Collective and Beam, in our episode show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them, because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.